I want to uh, also, before we open with prayer, I want to uh, just two other requests that I, I, I want us to know about and even pray about right now. One is that um, last night there was a bus full of young life uh, people. Troy, who goes to this church, was heading up this thing, I take it, and was bringing a bunch of uh, young people, most of whom were non-believers, to a camp where they're going to hear the gospel down in Colorado. On the way down there, the, they, they had a, uh, an accident. Now, thankfully, no one was killed, but there's one person, Jeremy, who's critically injured, and there's 35 others who were injured, including Troy, who has a broken rib and a dislocated knee. So we need to pray for that. Another thing I want to pray for uh, quickly here this morning is Kevin Olson. Kevin is the husband of Annie Olson, who's on staff uh, at Woodland Hills Church here. And um, he received some very discouraging news about a cancer that he's been battling for the last year and a half. Uh, and it is not looking good for him right now. And so we need to, as a body of Christ, uh, bind together and intercede for these folks. Would you just grab the hand of the person next to you? Whether you know them or not, doesn't matter. But let's just bind together, if you can, and let's pray. Father, first of all, Lord, I want to bring before you, on behalf of this congregation, God, this bus, and all the students in this bus, Lord. I thank you, Lord God, that no one was killed, but we pray particularly for, Jer- for Jeremy, who is in critical condition, Lord God, and we ask that you'd protect him and heal him in Jesus' name. And for all those who were injured, to whatever extent, Lord God, we pray for a fast recovery. Give the doctors wisdom, Lord God, and be moving. For those who are in the hospitals, Lord God, be moving right now in their hospital rooms, Lord. We pray, God, that you would turn this around somehow in, in a way that only you and your wisdom can do, Lord. Turn this around to your advantage, Lord, and, and somehow maybe teach the principle of spiritual warfare to these kids or whatever, Lord. But, but we just pray, God, that by the power of your spirit, you would not have the enemy get an advantage here, Lord God, but rather that you would use it for your own glory in Jesus' name. And then, Lord God, we bring before you Kevin. Lord God, you, whenever you confronted cancer or blindness or muteness or deafness or scoliosis or any other infirmity, Lord, you didn't roll over and accept it, Lord. You, you fought against it and you taught us to do the same. And so, Lord, we right now come against this cancer in Jesus' name. And Lord, as you did with Peter's mother, you rebuked the fever in her life. And so also we rebuke the cancer in Kevin's life. We take authority over it. We don't stand on our own authority, but we stand under the authority of uh, the cross on the basis of what you've done for us on the authority of your word. And we bind the cancer in Jesus' name. And we come against anything in the spiritual realm that would be causing it or aggravating it in any degree. And we bind it in Jesus' name. Praise God. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to be moving in his life right here and right now to shrink the tumors, Lord, to heal him, to glorify yourself by being the great physician to him. We pray in Jesus' name. And then, Lord God, wrap them around with your arms, with your love, and with your peace that passes all understanding, Lord. In this very difficult period of their life, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 That's how we do it. Praise God. We are, I've been talking about prayer the last Lord knows how long. And that's all right. We're going to talk about it for some more, too. I have covered the various principles of prayer, principles that, uh, that pertain to the effectiveness of prayer. Last week we talked about righteousness. And then we also talked about one thing that I felt like I should hover on a little bit longer here this morning. Um, it is this. Last week I mentioned how God calls us to be His helpers. Whereas co-laborers, in fact, that's what prayer is. It's co-laboring with God according to established principles that His will would be carried out on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, for some people, it sounds odd to say that God wants, let alone God needs, helpers, co-laborers, fellow workers. Sounds odd because God is God. He's omnipotent. He does whatever He wants, right? Well, see, if you believe that, if you believe that uh, God's going to do whatever God's going to do no matter what, then it's really hard to get urgent and passionate about prayer. There is an assumption. It's not usually held consistently by evangelicals, but it is pervasive among evangelicals. And the assumption is that everything that happens is somehow the will of God. Whether it's good, whether it's evil, whether it's significant or insignificant, whether it's happy or tragic, somehow it reflects the will of God. It's pretty pervasive. I see it all the time. And to the degree that that presupposition is made inroads into our minds and hearts, it's very hard to believe that anything that you do really makes a difference. And if you don't believe that anything that you do really makes a difference, it's hard to believe that your prayer really makes a difference. So it'll be hard to be passionate about prayer. I want to use this as an illustration here. And I just, if you're visiting here for the first time, you've got to know that sometimes we believe in hitting hard. We believe on saying it straight. Amen. We don't believe in fluffing stuff. We don't try to tickle ears or just give people warm fuzzies. Uh, so uh, this may be a little bit different than what you're used to. But here's uh, an illustration of it. Uh, there's a man uh, who most of you know from reading the paper, listening to the news this week. His five children were killed by his wife. Uh, his, the mother uh, must have went insane or maybe she was demonized or we don't know. Uh, but she murdered her five children, drowned, it all, drowned all of them in a bathtub. It was tragic. It was nightmarish. The oldest one was eight years old. Now, this man uh, said some words at this funeral. And see, if I knew this man, if I was talking to this man, I never would say what I'm going to say now because I'd let the guy say whatever he needs to say because I'm not in his shoes. And if I was in his shoes, maybe I... When, when a person's in the midst of misery and a nightmare, you don't correct their theology, all right? That's, that's the rule number one. You let people let off steam however they need to let out steam. Let off steam. But here's what he said. He gave this uh, a little eulogy for each of his five children that was gut-wrenching. And then he says, If the Lord gives and the Lord takes away... That's exactly what he's done. He gave me my five children and now he's taken them away from me. So now I have at least about a half dozen times heard Job 1, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I've heard it said at children's funerals. And it is grieving me a great deal. And it reflects this presupposition that I'm talking about. Somehow, Somehow, in some way, everything that happens, including the murder, the barbaric murder of five children, the insane murder of five children, somehow is God's doing. I mean, the assumption is somehow God's controlling what this mad woman is doing. You might suspect that Satan was controlling what this woman was doing. I certainly suspected that. But if you take this verse at, at, at the way this man says it, it's, it's, it's really God who's controlling everything that this woman does. In fact, you'd come to believe that from the foundation of the world, before the world ever began, God was planning each and every, every murder just the way it happened. So it all somehow fits into the perfect will of God. Now, I want to do a little teaching here on the book of Job because I'm just so tired of hearing that verse quoted out of context. Okay, we... That verse has become kind of a slogan that, that gets used whenever someone suffers loss. We say the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. You get raped and have your innocence lost. Your kids get murdered, you lose your kids. Your marriage falls apart, you lose your marriage. People say willy-nilly, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And that uh, assumption erodes uh, our faith in a lot of ways. The book of Job, you've got to understand this. Job was a man who was in an insane, nightmare situation. 
And he says a lot of things in the book of Job that were to take as being honest. They're from his heart. They're authentic, and that's a good thing. But they don't reflect accurate theology. In fact, the whole point of the book of Job, at the end of the book of Job, is to, when the Lord shows up, he has a monologue for three chapters, and he basically says this, Job is wrong in thinking that God is to blame for all the evils in the world, and Job's friends are wrong for thinking that Job is to blame for all the evils that come his way. The answer to the problem of evil is found simply in the complexity of creation that they know very little about. Listen to some of the things that Job says in the book of Job. Just listen to this. He says this in Job chapter 9. God mocks the calamity of the innocent. The idea there is that God actually laughs at those people who suffer innocently. The earth is given into the hands of the wicked. That's God's doing. He covers the eyes of its judges so that they don't administer justice. He covers their eyes so they make blind judgments. If it is not he, who then is it? See, Job's working under the assumption that everything that happens is God's will. And he's drawing the conclusion that if that is so, then God is not all good. He laughs at the suffering of the innocent. Why don't we make that into a little slogan that we recite? Whenever, whenever we see an person suffering, let's just remind them that God is laughing. It's on the same power as the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Why are times not kept by the Almighty and why do those who know Him never see His days? He's saying, why doesn't God ever reward the righteous? From the city the dying groan, and the throat of the wounded cries for help. Yet God pays no attention to their prayer. Let's make this into a little evangelical slogan. Whenever you see a person wounded, groaning, someone dying out in the street, let's just go remind them that God will not hear their prayer no matter what they do. Right? Just, Lord gives, Lord takes away, the Lord does not hear your prayer. Your hands, Job says to God, your hands fashioned and made me, and now you turn to destroy me. This is a man who's uh, in despair. He's feeling like God is destroying him. Bold as a lion, you hunt me and repeat your exploits against me. Let me alone that I might find a little comfort. There's a little nice piece of evangelical piety. Let's pray that God will leave us alone. Peace, peace, wonderful peace when God just leaves us alone. Yeah. Well, see, but you know, of course, this is not accurate theology. A guy's shooting out. You let him shoot out. Job's friends should have shut up during the whole thing. Would have been a different kind of a book. But uh, Job's shooting out wrong theology here. God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my, all my ways, or all my friends, my company. He has shriveled me up. He's torn me in his wrath. He's hated me. Is that true? He's gnashed his teeth at me. He's a pit bull. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. The word adversary there is Satan. It's the word Satan. Job's a little bit confused in his theology. He's thinking God is Satan. You have turned cruel to me, he says, and with the might of your hand you persecute me. With violence God seizes my garment. He grasps me by the collar of the tunic. He's shaking me around. See, Job is feeling like God is his, is his enemy, is against him, and that everything that's happening to him is part of God's will. So he's drawing the natural conclusion that God's not all good, God's not all holy. And we really are in dangerous exegetical trouble when we start quoting the words out of Job's mouth as though they are part of God's will. When God shows up at the end, he basically says, Job, you and your friends are misguided. You're blaming me for all that's happening uh, to you. Your friends are blaming you for all that ha that's happening to you. And next week, by the way, I'm going to be talking more about this. Those are the two answers that, that believers still, even though the whole book of Job is written to correct this theology, we still have those two options. It's either God's will or, or it's, your, it's your fault. 
One of the two, either you lack faith, you got sin in your life, that's why you're crippled. Or God must just will it, God's just doing it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The Lord doesn't hear the prayer of those on the streets who are praying to Him. You know, uh, those are the two options. When God shows up, He says, you're both wrong. But He doesn't say, I can do whatever I want, or Job deserved what he got. What He says is, you guys don't understand creation. You, 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 you weren't there when I set up the ordinances of the heaven. You weren't there when I put the stars in the sky. You weren't there when I caused the wind to blow. You don't even know where it comes from. You're not there when I figure out how to make the rainfall. You have no idea about that. You, know, you aren't there when I'm fighting Leviathan, this cosmic creature that you all believe in. And until you are there, and until you understand what's going on, and until you have a little bit broader knowledge of the cosmos, until you understand, have some clue as to the complexity of creation, don't go spouting things you do not understand and accusing people or accusing God that you do not understand and you do not know. And so Job concludes in, this, in the end of this book, he concludes this. He says, I have uttered things I do not understand. Job 42.3. Even Job says, I didn't know what I was talking about. And we still got people quoting him at kids' funerals today. You see, there's two major problems with this worldview. This is so pervasive and needs to be confronted head on. When you have this assumption on some level that somehow everything, everything from the child being murdered to the rape to you not finding a parking space, it's all part of God's plan somehow. There's this vast divine conspiracy against you and maybe little kids. And the, the divine blueprints being played out through the whole thing. When you have that mentality, then number one, it's very hard to with any kind of consistency affirm that God is good. We say all the time, because I think it's so crucial to our faith, that God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. God is good. All the time. All the time. Okay, I believe that. I think everything hangs upon that. I've got to trust in God's character. But if God, you see, if God's really the one who's ultimately behind the five kids getting murdered, maybe my five kids getting murdered, and if God's ultimately the one behind every little gasp of a little child in a gas chamber, and really God is the one who's ordaining the pulling of the lever of the Nazi guard that, that, that exudes the gas in the gas chamber, if every rape, of every mutilation, of every kidnap, of every earthquake, of every mudslide is all part of God's plan, then what do you mean when you say that God is all good? If that is good, somebody show me what evil would look like. You see, how do you affirm the goodness of God unless it contrasts with all the evil that is there in this world? The other thing is you see Jesus consistently throughout His ministry. He doesn't accept, never once does He accept these things as coming from the Father's loving hand. He, he confronts them as coming from Satan's hand. And they're things that are to be confronted and revolted and resisted and thrown out in Jesus' name, in His own name. He confronts that as things that God does not will. So the first problem with this worldview is it casts aspersion on God's character. I believe that most of the atheists in Western culture are atheists because they think that believing in God means believing in this. And they say, well, if that's the way God is, then who can believe in Him? We have a moral obligation not to believe in Him. The second thing, and this is the thing I want to really hone in on here, is that if you think that God's already doing everything, that somehow everything that happens is all part of His good plan, then there's really nothing left for you to do. And see, this is one of the selling points of this theology. It means it, it, you're, we're alleviated of any kind of moral responsibility. There's this sort of case sarah sarah fatalism that comes into being. It is popular for the same reason that Stoicism in the ancient world was popular. Stoics believed that everything that happens was according to fate. Couldn't happen otherwise. And then there's kind of a peace that comes with that. It's like, well then, you know, 
It's really no big deal. You just kind of got to roll with the punches. Well, if you believe that God is already controlling everything, well, then your prayers or lack of prayers and your involvement or lack of involvement, your work or lack of work in the kingdom really doesn't make a lot of difference. You don't have to take responsibility for anything that happens. If it happens, it must have been God's will. The way you know that something is God's will is you ask, did it happen? Well, it must not have been God's timing. God's will. God's will always gets done. It's never thwarted. And so there's no sense of moral responsibility here. It's hard to, with any degree of passion, pray, God, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if, in fact, you believe that God's will is already being done. You know, the only way you can pray with any kind of passion is is if you're trying to make a difference, if you're trying to change things. And I, more than anything else, want to have an army of people who know that their prayer and their work and their involvement and their sacrifice counts in building the kingdom of God. That's one of the reasons why I want to, amen, I want to become against with everything that's within me. Amen. This, uh, this way of thinking. Now let me give you an alternative way of looking at this. I'm pulling together pieces here that we've touched on over the last five to eight weeks. Go to the, if you go to the book of Genesis, where God first creates human beings, you find this. Let's ask the question, why did God make human beings? All the church is, is restored humanity. We are people who have recaptured the original purpose for which God created the world and the original purpose for which He created us. It says this in Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. And let them have dominion upon the earth. This is what it is to be made in the image of God, in the Imago Dei. We we are a chip off the old block, if you will. Um, We we have a, a... uh, God's signature on us. We're, we're going to do a little bit, in a little way, what God does in a big way. God has dominion over the entire universe, and now He gives us a domain to have dominion on. The word dominion is the same word that we get kingdom from. We're to be building a kingdom here. So we're made in His image, and we have dominion upon the earth. So God created humankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Women, note that. You're as much in the image of God as men ever were. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now I want us to know just several things about this very, very important passage. This is where God's first making human beings. Number one, no, we're made to be mediaries. God wants to rule the world. He wants to rule creation. But He does it through mediaries. On a big scale, He does it through angels. And on the earth, He does it through human beings. He's a God who's a social God, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. He could exercise unilateral, tyrannical control over everything, and everything would go just fine. But there's one thing that that creation would be lacking, which this creation has, and that is love. God creates, He's a social God. His very essence is love, it says in 1 John. So He creates personal beings who are mediaries to carry out His will upon the earth as it is in heaven. And these beings have free will so that they can choose to either in love obey Him or in rebellion disobey Him. The choices are. Note that we're made in the image of God. This is our dignity. And the image is, is, is manifested when we obey Him and do what He does in a big way. We do it in a little way. We have dominion. We're to carry out His will upon this earth. We're to subdue the world. Our job was to protect the world from the influence of evil forces. And unfortunately, we surrendered that over to Satan early on in our history. But that was our original job. And now in the church, God's given to us that responsibility and that power back again. 
We're made in the image of God. Chip off the old block, we have dominion. Note this also. The very fact that God, He blesses us. This is the biblical pattern that's found throughout the whole Bible. God blesses us and then commands us. Whenever God blesses for the purpose of carrying out a command, and you'll find that the more you carry out the command, the more you're blessed. That's God's economy. He says, be blessed and now be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the whole world. He blesses us to carry out His command. And the fact that He commands us to have dominion shows that we don't have to obey Him. You, the, you only command someone to do something if they have to choose whether they're going to do it or not. If it was built into us, if we were robots that had to carry out His will, well then first of all, you would have trouble explaining the fall, wouldn't you? But secondly, He wouldn't have to command us. We would just automatically do it. The fact that He commands us shows that the ball's in our court. We have a choice. We can either choose to go with Him or go against Him. And as a race of people, you know that we in fact went against Him. In essence, the reason why human beings are created, we reflect God's love, we're going to participate in His love throughout eternity, but we also have a job description. We're here to carry out His will upon the earth. We were made to be His helpers. And the Bible doesn't come short of saying that, in fact, we're called to be His helpers. We read this passage last week, Judges chapter 5, verse 23. It says this, and the Lord says, Curse Moraz, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. God has set up the world such that He wants, and in fact, if His will's going to get done, He needs those who is commissioned to help Him. Here He calls, He's going against, with Israel, He's going against the nation, and He calls for Moraz to help in this, and Moraz refuses. Whenever you refuse to be a helper of God, you invite cursing on your life. Whenever you obey God and become a helper to carry out His will, you invite blessing on your life. In this case, uh, Miraz um, uh, said no. But what I want us to see here is this. The help that God calls for is real. He, it really does hang upon this. He's not pretending this is not a dress rehearsal. He really does empower human beings made in His image to carry out His will. And when they decide not to carry out His will, His will really doesn't get done. It depends on what the helpers, the co-laborers, those who have uh, fellowship with God, choose to do. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. The word literally means we work with God. It's incredible to me that the omnipotent Creator would make things such that He empowers us and to some degree restricts what will happen in this world based on what we do in working with Him. We are His fellow workers. Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Fellow workers, we work with God. The omnipotent God gives us say-so, and it's real. The omnipotent God gives us authority, amen, and it's real. The, the omnipotent God creates the kind of world such that whether or not and the degree to which His will is done on earth as it is in heaven, to some extent, and is an important extent, hangs upon what the fellow workers of God, the co-laborers of God, those made in the image of God, the helpers of God, it hangs upon what they choose to do. Whether we go along with it or whether we refuse it will influence the extent to which God's will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus prayed this prayer in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. He says, as he's coming to face the crucifixion, he throws himself on the ground and he says, Father, if it's possible... If it is possible, look at this, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. 
I know I came into the world for this purpose to die on the cross, but now he's facing hell. He's facing all the sin of the world being put upon him. He's facing the wrath of God. And so everything in him says, if, if, if there's a way, if there's any way to possibly avoid this, then, Lord, then, then Father, let it happen. Trying to change the plan at the last minute, and who can blame him? But of course, as you know, it wasn't possible. It wasn't possible. What we learn from this episode is this. If God's will was going to be carried out on the world, it was going to take a mediary to do it. There's no, it's not like God's in the magic where he can, he can just wave a magic wand. The only way to accomplish His will on earth as it is in heaven is through the mediary Jesus Christ. There was no other possible way. If God's will was going to be done in reconciling humanity to Himself, if God's will was going to be done in forgiving sinners, if God's will was going to be done and, and His justice would meet His mercy, if God's will was going to be done and all the sins of the world would be cast away, it would require the suffering and the sacrifice and the willingness of His fellow worker, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen? And it shows us the principle throughout the world. If it's going to happen, the only way it's possible for it to happen, given the kind of world that God made, was for His fellow workers, the helpers, to say yes to it. Let me make this concrete here. Let me bring it all down to, to a concrete level. It's like this. God wants... God wants kids. He's a God of love. He wants kids raised in homes where the kids grow up healthy and learn something about His character by how their parents raise them. God wants kids raised right. But the only way that can happen is if parents cooperate with God to see God's will done in their kids' life. You see? And if parents decide to reject kids or abuse kids or murder kids, the kids are going to suffer and God's going to be grieved. But don't go saying, if the kids suffer, don't go saying, oh, it must be God's will. No, God's will is for the kids to prosper. When they don't prosper, it's not about God, it's about the parents. The fate of kids really does hang on the parents as part of our responsibility. We've got to own up to that. We can't just say, okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. It must be God's will. It's God's will. It's God's will that every person that was ever born into this world would be saved. God is not willing that any should perish, it says in 1 Peter chapter 3. He's not willing that any should perish, but wants all to come to repentance. He really does. He died not just for our sins, it says in 1 John 2, 2, but for the, the sins of the entire world. He wants to be the Savior of all, it says in 1 Timothy 2, and so on and so on and so on. He wants everybody saved. But it's not going to happen unless the people themselves say yes to Jesus Christ. Oh, God influences, God works, the Holy Spirit pulls at their heart. But if they don't say yes, if they obstinately refuse to the bitter end, God's not going to turn them into robots because what He wants is genuine love, not programmed love. They've got to buckle in on their own. And if people end up rejecting God, they bring suffering upon themselves and God is grieved. But when they bring suffering on themselves, don't go saying, well, it must be God's will. You know, it just all fits in His plan. Maybe He's got a couple elect and the rest He wants to go to hell. No! His will is to save all of them. When they damn themselves, it's not about God's will, it's about their will. God really does entrust people with responsibility, with authority. God wants everyone to hear the gospel. One way or another, He wants them to hear the good news. But see, it's not going to happen unless the people who know the good news are willing to share it. 
Unless they're willing to say, hey, want to come to an Alpha program? Would you like to visit, you know, church? Unless maybe you spend time cultivating a relationship as the Lord leads you. You know, uh, uh, unless, unless you're willing to, at the right time, as God leads, to share the gospel. Paul says in Romans 10, how shall, they, how shall they believe if they do not hear? And how shall they hear if someone doesn't tell them? God needs... In the same way that God needs parents to raise kids right, and God needs people to uh, buckle under if they're going to be saved, so also God needs believers who have a heart for evangelism if those who don't know the good news are ever going to hear the good news. And if they don't hear the good news, the cause of Christ is compromised, and we can't say that's God's will. No, God's will is for them to hear the good, uh, good news. It's about us, not God, when that doesn't happen. He really doesn't trust us with responsibility. We've got to own up to that. Here's, here's another one. God's will. God's will. We know that Jesus died to make one new race. Amen? He died to make one new race, one new humanity. He says that in Ephesians 2. He died that the walls of division, the walls of hostility between the races would be torn down. He died that Babel, that, that, that time when all of humanity was dispersed and became segregated. You read on the day of Pentecost, He died and poured out His Spirit that that could begin to be reversed. He wants a people, a one new humanity where He's the figurehead. And the beautiful diversity and magnificent wonder of the, the w different ways that people look and the different cultures that they're involved in, He wants a place where that's displayed and it's celebrated. Amen? That's one of the reasons why He died. But it's not going to happen unless the people of God say, You know what? I will stop making convenience Lord of my life and I'll make Jesus Christ Lord of my life. It's not going to happen unless the people of God say, you know, I'm going to reach out to people who look different than me. I'm going to embrace people who maybe sing different than me. I'm going to learn how to enjoy music that maybe is different than the music I am used to hearing. I'm going to enjoy different cultures uh, than the one that I'm uh, naturally uh, uh, open to. I'm going to be a bridge and I'm going to be a wall tearer downer rather than being a wall setter upper, amen? And if that doesn't happen, then God's will for the church doesn't happen. And if it doesn't happen, we can't go saying, well, it must be God's will. You know, me, he must have wanted it this way. No. We know what God's will is. The question is, is will we get our will to line up with his will? Amen. Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. I was at a seminar this last week that Peggy Riley, who's an African-American woman on, our, on staff here, uh, heading up our prayer department, she gave this, this seminar. And uh, she points this out. That um, studies show, and to just, just let this be, just let it land, don't get indicted, don't do a lot of think about this, just let it be out there, okay? That most Caucasians, when they get into an environment where they're less than 70% of the majority, begin to feel like they're a minority. They begin to feel outnumbered. It's just, the, it's just we're so used to being a, a more dominant majority that as soon as we're a, a, only 70% of the majority, we begin to feel uncomfortable, and a good percentage of them begin to leave those situations. This is why you'll find time after time churches that strive for integration, when they begin to get significantly diversified, white people begin to leave. And often they take their money with them. And they go to places where they feel more comfortable, where it's a little more convenient, where they have the music that they like and they don't have to listen to people sing different than what they're used to singing. And they don't have to look at people who dress different than the way they're used to dressing and people talking different than the way that they're talking and people looking different than the way that they like to look. You see, so they go to their own little private homogenous place. And then what's happened is we've actually developed a principle out of this. There's a number of church planters who advocate what's called the homogenous church growth principle, 
which says this, if you want to build a church, well, then you just got to expect that the whites are going to worship with whites, the blacks with blacks, and the Hispanics with Hispanics, Latinos with Latinos, and that's just the way it is, and that's, well, you know, that's just the way God must have designed it. So don't try to integrate it. If you try to integrate it, you're going to send the whites away, and then you're going to bottom out financially, and who knows where it's going to go from there. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> that's what the Bible calls, well... It's what I call institutional sin. Institutionalized sin. Where you just say, you know what? It's just too tough, so it must not be God's will. See, it's just too inconvenient, it must not be God's will. That's true if convenience is your God. (laughs) Saints of God, it is so important that uh, we stop calling stuff that comes from Satan stuff that is of God. Amen. And we start calling stuff that is of God, stuff that is against Satan. Amen. God wants the people, see, His goal is to do what the world can't do. I refuse to accept that the church and the power of the Holy Ghost can't do what the world can't do. Just because the world can't do it. I refuse to accept that we can't do better than that. I refuse that we've got to sink to the lowest common denominator. Amen. I refuse to accept that we've got to just give in to the sinful structures of the world. I refuse to believe that God can't with it, raise up a people who are willing to say, I'll be counted. I'll move out of my convenience zone. I'll move out of my comfort zone. I'll swim upstream. I'll swim against current. I'll do what's daily unpopular to do. I'll tear down the walls and I'll build the bridges. I'll tear down the stereotypes. Praise God. I'll move out of my comfort zone. But it will not happen unless there are people of God, you and me in particular, that are saying, okay, I'll go with it. I'll be stretched. I'll be moved out of my comfort zone. God wants it to happen. The question is this. Do the people of God or the people of God are willing to have it? And it really hangs on this. This isn't pretend. It's not a dress rehearsal. This is the real show here, folks. It's about whether you and I are willing to stand up and be counted. Amen? And so it is for everything about the kingdom of God. God wants to have here, folks, I just feel led to say it so straight. He wants to, he wants to have a, a, a ministry that we have a counseling, people train counselors who give uh, to everybody available affordable counseling to get them out of their drug addiction and to get them out of their marriage conflicts, uh, to help people get off of drugs and out of violent relationships, uh, just to service the community. But God needs co-workers, fellow laborers who are willing to say, I'm going to help spread the kingdom of God to do it. He wants to have a people who have a family counseling center where families can get their act together. He wants to see people getting rooted in community with one another. Praise God. Praise God. He wants to have a prayer and deliverance center where people can come, even non-believers, and get their prayer, get prayer for the issues in their life. Jesus didn't give people a theology test before he prayed for them. And then just to have that out there. He wants a, a place where young people from all over the Twin Cities can come and have something to do on Friday and Saturday night other than going out and smoking some doobies and getting together and, and, and having some good music and having a good time, a place to hang out, a fishing pond where the fish come to. And there's Christian influence all over the place, praise God. And they're coming under the influence of Christ and they're coming under the influence of, of Christians and they're getting saved by the hundreds and by the thousands. God wants it to happen. But you know what? God's will needs to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the ones who hold the key are you and me. Those whom God calls helpers. Those whom God calls fellow laborers. We work with God on this. So the question is this. Will we do this? Will you stand up and say, I will not any longer be a bystander, uh, a, a, a spectator, 
an occasional, you know, watcher on this whole thing, but I'll get in the flow of things. I will be counted. I will be a worker in the kingdom of God. This is our dignity and this is our responsibility, folks. Being made in the image of God, which is now restored because you're believers. You now have this dignity. You know that not only are you loved with an everlasting love and have an infinite worth before God, but what you do makes an eternal difference. Everything you do for the kingdom of God, every prayer you pray, every minute you volunteer, every deed that you do reaching out and extending hands to another, it all furthers the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. It's an incredible dignity. Every dollar you spend furthers the kingdom of God. It's it's an incredible dignity. Who would have thought that the omnipotent, almighty creator God would have empowered us to make such a difference, but he did. It's an incredible authority that you've got. But it's also an amazing responsibility. Now, let me say this right out the get-go. See, there are two kinds of people that you can err in two different directions. Some, most people in America, they don't think, you know, most Christians in America don't think they have any responsibility. And so I'm going to tell you, you've got responsibility. But then there are others who think that now, as you hear this message, you've got all the responsibility. And every person who's not going to heaven on your block and every starving kid in the world is somehow your fault. And see, that's, that's of the devil too. You're not God. God is. You're not the Savior of the world. God is. He'll give you a little slice to be responsible for. Now that little slice is yours and He needs you to be His worker there. The slice in the ministry here, the slice in your family and whoever else will lead. But don't go owning the problems of the world. You'll die on that one. You'll give up. You'll despair. I've been there, done that. No fun. All right? <laughs> Be responsible for what God gives you, but you are responsible. It's our dignity and our responsibility. As the worship team gets ready to come forward, I'm going to to put it like this. Here's here's the final bottom line. You know, the devil has got this world so confused. People think that the way to get happy and joy is by pursuing your own stuff. You seek for, look out for number one. You seek to, to, to better yourself. Uh, and that's all, you know, you put yourself first and that's the way to get joyful. But you know what? That's an absolute lie. When you decide to live in congruity with God, as a co-laborer with God, you will find it coming back on you in ways. See, now you're doing what God created you to do. And now you're going to find, number one, that there's a peace about your life. There's a fulfillment that otherwise would never be there. Because you're, you're being in the image of God. You're, you're doing a little piece of what God does in a big piece. Okay, you're carrying out His will. And there's a harmony there. There's a peace that is there. The character of God begins to flow in your life. It's called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. As you align yourself with God's will, He begins to pour His life into you. The joy of God, the love of God, the peace of God, the patience of God, it begins to be yours. You pursue that on your own, you don't get it. You forget it on your own and pursue God. Seek all these things, the Bible says. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Secondly, you'll find that your life takes on a purpose. We were made for a purpose. And if you're just chasing the dollar or the bigger house or the better shoes or the nicer clothes or the fame or the fortune, there's no ultimate purpose in that. No, maybe they're nice things to enjoy. But anything that comes to an end is ultimately meaningless. There's only one thing that does not come to an end, and that's people. And so whatever we do to further the kingdom of God in people's lives is meaningful. And God, in His almighty sovereignty, has decided to give our lives meaning. How? By participating and making a difference in other people's lives. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. You've got a purpose. And man, does it feel good to have a purpose. 
Kill me today and my life was still meaningful, praise God. Because I know that everything I've done, every word I've said, every dime I've spent, every minute I've been in prayer, it all has made a difference. It's meaningful and it comes back on me. Which leads to the third point, and that is this. That when you, when you, God blesses to be a blessing, and when you bless others, the blessing comes back on you. And a lot of you have found that to be true firsthand. Emotionally, that comes back on you. Psychologically, it comes back on you. Spiritually, it comes back on you. Financially, it comes back on you. It's just God's principle. It's there in Genesis 1. It runs throughout the whole Bible. The more you love, the more love you've got to love. The more you try to give it away, the more you have to give away. It's just the way that the Lord has structured things. He wants to bless you with it. Praise God. Will you this morning resolve in your heart to be a worker for the kingdom? To be a co-laborer with God? A partner with God? The Holy Spirit's here saying, you know what, will you work with me on this? I got a little purpose for your life. I got a part. A part of my kingdom needs you to be over it. I want to make you landlord over some of my property. Will you say yes to me? Will you say yes to me? And it really hangs in the balance. And when you say yes, and we sometimes say God helps those who help themselves. The truth is, God helps those who help Him. All right? And say, don't take that out of context, but you know what I'm talking about. Make that decision.